Hello, welcome to Conservation Heroes. I'm your host, Charlotte Latimer, and on this podcast, we will explore the communities, human, animal and plant, battling for our survival on the front lines of climate change. Each episode, we'll look at a different plant, animal or habitat and how by protecting them, we might save the environment. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Conservation Heroes. Today's special topic is oceans and we're very lucky to have Jeff Arden on the show with us today who is an advisor on ocean governance to the Commonwealth Secretariat. Oceans play a really important role in combating climate change because not only do they store carbon but seagrasses, mangroves and other coastal ecosystems actually remove carbon from the atmosphere. This is sometimes called blue carbon. There was a recent article in The Guardian quoting energy expert Fatia Briel, who said we only have six months to avert climate crisis. And this June has been the hottest ever recorded on Earth. So already we can see the effects of global warming happening all around us. For many in the conservation sector, this means adapting to new climates and weather conditions. But it is still crucial that we keep our levels of carbon emissions as low as possible and work to remove carbon from the atmosphere. The fifth assessment report published by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2013 revealed that the ocean had absorbed more than 93% of the excess heat from greenhouse gas emissions since the 1970s. So the ocean has really played a role in helping us to keep levels of global warming low. And as the oceans get hotter, they can absorb less heat, they will rise, and the changes in temperature will also affect the composition of the oceans and affect ocean life having a damaging effect. It's crucial that we understand the role that climate change is having and will have on the ocean and think about what we can do to help. Alongside threats from climate change, the ocean also faces other problems like pollution and overfishing. On top of this, as mining practices become more advanced and sophisticated, there are risks posed at the bottom of the oceans as humans explore and extract the minerals that can be found there. Jeff Arden is one of the experts in this field and he is here today to talk to us about ocean governance and his favourite sea creature, the octopus. Welcome, Jeff. Oh, thanks, Charlie, for having me on the show. Jeff, you have over 25 years experience in marine governance, as well as working for the Commonwealth Secretariat. You're also working on a PhD in good governance and deep sea mining at the University of Southampton. That's correct, yeah. It's really great to have you on the show today and get your insights about oceans and what's happening in this field and what we could do to help over the next uh, six months to a year and looking forward into the future as well. So first, could you tell us how did you start working in ocean governance? Well, I was living in a small fishing village on the west coast of Canada. I mean, by small, I mean small, 800 people. And um, I was raising my family there, sometimes working on the fish boats. And um, I and a couple others had just started a a small environmental group. And we were initially focused on forestry, on logging. But it became increasingly obvious that actually in the ocean all around us that we had been taking for granted, there were serious issues starting to brew. And so it was very much at a grassroots level, working with fishermen um, and working with the local community to start to look at ocean issues. And it, honestly, it went from there. I went back to the university to get my master's degree. And then I started working um, overseas and international issues and uh, 
the rest is history, as they say. So what were the, the main issues that were coming up at the time to do with oceans that made you feel you really wanted to go back to university um, and work in this area? So fishing is has been historically by far the single largest pressure on the ocean. And I want to make clear right now, I am in favor of fishing, but there's good ways and bad ways to do it. And honestly, in a little fishing community with fishermen who are saying to me, you know, Jeff, you have a university education, you can go back, you can do something. A lot of the fishermen felt disempowered to do something about the changes they were seeing and what they viewed to be government mismanagement. And that really got me thinking, and that is how I started to get into it, is, okay, well, if it's being mismanaged right now, what would we need to do to do a better job? And that was the beginning. Uh, Since then, climate change has been climbing the scale as another huge issue um, that humans have caused. So fisheries is the traditional one. It's been happening um, at at a concerning scale for centuries, actually, centuries in Europe. There have been losses of fish stocks. But now we have the additional concern of climate change. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not an easy time for the ocean right now. And I think one of the problems that citizen activists face is that it's not always clear, you know, who is governmentally responsible for an ocean. So it's not so easy as writing to your MP about an issue. It's more difficult to know where you go to um, to get involved in protecting the oceans, um, you know, and for, even for people living um, in coastal areas, you know, it can still be quite difficult to know how you connect with, with the legal frameworks that protect the oceans and what you can do to advocate more for the ocean. Well, yes and no. I think in a way, you can always go to your MP, by the way. Always, always, always go to your MP. So don't be afraid not to. Um, ocean issues do get discussed in Parliament. Uh, the UK has divided up its waters um, with, you know, in much the same way that other countries do, but the nearshore waters are under the jurisdiction of, you know, England, Scotland, Wales. Um, but then the offshore waters are all still managed uh, here in in, uh, in London uh, by the capital, by the overarching national government. So uh, there's still a lot that can be said and done. Just letting your MP know that you care about the ocean is really the first and most basic thing you can do, because, of course, MPs are swamped with things that people care about. So let them know you care about the ocean. Let them know you visit it. You Maybe you're a scuba diver. Maybe you're just snorkeling. Maybe you love to sail. Maybe you like fresh fish. Maybe it's just a place that you go for spiritual recharging. Uh, whatever it is, you know, let them know that you value it and you want to see some of it uh, better protected. That's really um, helpful and useful advice. Do you know much about the kind of overall um, frameworks that protect the ocean globally? Yeah, so um, there's a thing called the, under the United Nations, called the Convention on the Law of the Sea. And um, it was agreed upon in 1982. It came into force in 1994. Um, and it's sort of the overarching framework, the overarching so-called constitution of the ocean. And um, a lot of what nations do have to fit under what we call UNCLOS, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So that's the overarching framework. But countries still have quite a lot of freedom in what they can do in their own waters, including protection and as well as exploitation. So you mentioned seabed mining. That is completely at the discretion of the UK government in its waters out to um, uh, 200 nautical miles, roughly speaking. And do you know what 
effect Brexit's going to have on the way that we manage our waters at the moment? Well, I think, as you've heard, fisheries is a contentious issue in the negotiations. Um, the Europeans would prefer that the arrangements that we have worked up over the years with the other European countries would at least hold. Uh, but uh, the UK government has said, no, no, we want a larger share for uh, the UK fisheries. It's not for me to say which is better or worse, but my concern is that any other time I have seen jurisdictions changing hands in, in, in the ocean, generally it leads to over-exploitation. Governments tend to over-promise what the benefits will be. Um, in the past, they even subsidized the building of larger vessels that could go further and deeper offshore. And um, while that did produce indeed short-term gains in the long term, it was not sustainable. And so my fear is, is whatever this government negotiates, it still has to be science-based. We still have to work within the constraints of the ecosystems that we have. We, it, it is political inevitably, but ultimately we have to live on this planet within our means. And that means being realistic about what we can allow and what we can't. Well, habitat is living space. Um, the ocean is a three-dimensional so what space. What are the main so threats to that, that marine habitats that are facing what, We're kind of used moment. to living on this tiny, skinny little surface and a little bit of air. Uh, but the ocean is very three-dimensional. So just for example, even though it covers 71% of the surface area of the planet, more than 95%, probably around 98% of habitat in the planet is the ocean. So it's massive. The ocean, basically, Habitat is the ocean, and there's this little bit of land on the side. Uh, what's under threat? So we have to think water column and sea bottom. Here in the UK, bottom trawling gets quite a lot of attention. Um, that is the dragging of heavy fishing gear along the bottom seafloor to scoop up fish. Um, it's a very much an industrial activity, and on land we have special places for industrial activities. We decide, okay, we you know, see the value of this, but we're not going to put a chemical plant in the middle of our, you know, village or so forth. We don't want to take certain risks in places, but we really haven't done that in the ocean very well. Um, for the most part, the trawlers can go where they please. Um, and uh, and in the midwater, remember, it's a three-dimensional space, even more so. So I think you may have noticed in the headlines in May, Russian super trawlers were trawling in Scotland in a protected area. And you'd say, well, how could this be? It was legal, by the way. It wasn't illegal. It was entirely legal because the UK government had chose not to protect the water column. So it was only protecting the seafloor in that instance and not the water column. And these super trawlers, which have rather large, impressive capacity, were just scooping up the fish out of the water. So that's an example of the misalignment. Um, of different management regimes that while they had protected the seafloor, they hadn't protected the water column. And here we go, we have Russian super trawlers in a protected area. That's really interesting. And I really like the way you describe the, the ocean as the habitat. And we're, we're just a small um, part of that world. That's a really nice way of thinking about it. In your work on deep sea mining for your PhD, what are the main sort of um, themes or trends that you've found um, are important for the development of mining in the ocean? So deep sea mining has actually been a dream for longer than you might imagine. Oh, for over 50 years, there was a, a book that came out in 1965 that talked about how many minerals were in the ocean. And at that time, they honestly thought it was inexhaustible. And it was just a question of getting at them. 
Um, the United Nations debated this, and this actually the United Nations debates led to the final negotiations on the law of the sea. So the law of the sea had been stalled a little bit until this idea of deep sea mining happened. And it was to avoid A, a gold rush, and B, remember, 1960s, this is very cold war. People were concerned about conflict, and they didn't want to have a fight over the resources of the ocean. Um, so that was actually drove a lot of the final law of the sea negotiations. Okay, fast forward more than 50 years, and we still, and I want to emphasize that, we still have not commercially mined the deep sea bed. It has never happened because it's actually a lot harder than people thought. Uh, but the attraction is still there. And indeed, there's um, some companies now that are arguing that if we're going to make a transition to renewable energies, green energies, that we will need more minerals and that we will have to get them from the seabed is their argument. Now, I want to point out that my research does not support this. My research suggests that it's an option. Uh, but it's an option that we shouldn't feel forced into. There's a very different way to ocean governance if you feel you have to mine the seafloor in order to do a green transition, or it's just another option to doing a green transition. And I argue, no, it's the latter. We don't actually have to go to the seafloor probably for 100 years or so. So we have time to figure this out and do it right. And like I talked about earlier, industrial areas, we don't set up all land as an industrial park. We shouldn't set up all the ocean as an industrial park. If we're going to do industrial activities in the ocean, they should be carefully monitored and um, you know, be constrained. Unfortunately, that's not really the way it is right now. Um, there have been more deep sea licenses distributed already in the world than all of Europe's land area. So all of Europe's land area or all of, North, or of the United States, the continental United States, is another way to think of it. Imagine all that as being just one mine. Now. The miners would tell you we're not going to mine every square meter. You know we're going to you know choose places. That's true, but it's still at least around thirty percent of that will be mined, and they still have control of that whole lease area. So we're talking about massive, massive areas of the seafloor that have been handed out um, for deep sea mining. It hasn't yet begun, and so my PhD research was about let's get it right. If some people want to do this, let's make sure that we're doing it in a way that we don't regret down the road. So that's what I was looking at. And um, what do you think are the most significant negative consequences that might be caused by deep sea mining? Well, you know, it's pretty destructive. It just is. Uh, mining on land is destructive too. But um, there's three kinds of deep sea mining. Um, hydrothermal vents are those chimneys that you may have seen on some of the special shows. All kinds of vents hang around, uh, animals hang around them that need those vents. So in those cases, if you destroy a vent, by mining it, you may be losing those communities. There's um, another kind of mining on seamounts, and seamounts are natural biological hotspots in the ocean. So again, if you're mining a natural hotspot in the ocean, there's going to be consequences. But my research focused on the third kind, which is called deep sea nodules, which are these potato-sized pieces of rock, nodules, uh, on the bottom of the seafloor, uh, very deep down. And the the issue here is that while they are rich in minerals, they're basically a two-dimensional resource. You do not dig into the ground to get them. They just sit on the surface. So for a mine to be profitable, it has to be mining about, and this is a massive amount, a million tons a year. Well, just imagine a million tons of potatoes that you have just scooped up 
from a two-dimensional space. So you're not digging down like you do on land. You just spread out. So what this means is that the footprint of this particular kind of deep sea mining, nodule mining, is massive. It's just a massive footprint. Added to that, deep sea biology is very slow. It's life in the slow lane. There's no night or day. There's no years, harsh, hardly. There's a slight seasonal changes that you know oceanographers can detect but essentially it's a single moment of extended time down there there were some early experiments uh done about 30 years ago to see the impacts of sort of um, simulated deep sea mining you can still see the tracks of the plows that they use to this day it's like it happened last year. It looks like it, you know, there's been a little sedimentation, but actually it looks like it happened last year, maybe last month, and that was 30 years ago. So it's really very long-lasting impacts down there. And it takes a while to get our human scale, our brains around that, something that would recover in a decade here or maybe a couple decades on a land-based mine, you know, forestation, things like that, centuries. Absolutely, would take centuries, if not millennia, to recover in the deep sea. And what are the risks to climate with deep sea mining? We don't really know. We know that there's carbon cycling happening throughout the ocean and including in the deep sea. We know that bits of carbon are falling down and getting buried, both natural, uh, both biologically and chemically, um, in the deep sea. We don't know how much of that will get messed up with mining because we haven't done those experiments. It just hasn't been tested. It wasn't a concern 30 years ago when they were doing some of these disturbance experiments. It just wasn't on the radar. Uh, but what we do know is that dragging heavy equipment to pick up potato-sized rocks off the seafloor create huge plumes of sediment. And those huge plumes of sediment are very likely to be resuspending carbon um, so that we could be actually putting carbon back into the atmosphere ultimately. But as I said, it's a little too soon to say for sure, but I can assure you that it will not speed up the sequestration of carbon. It will, if it interferes, it will interfere in a negative way. There's, there's no probable hypothesis that this will help. And also we haven't talked about the, the sea life that lives on the sea floor um, and how that would be affected. But um, you told me that your favorite sea creature is an octopus. Octopus are great. Um, I guess some people say octopi, but I say octopuses, but uh, they're, they're great animals. Um, they have essentially nine brains. They have uh, a pretty complex nervous system in each one of their legs or tentacles, and then a central one in you know what we call their head. But they are less centralized than we are. So imagine the difference between sort of a very uh, federal uh, well, federal government with lots of states and provinces like the U.S. or here in, in the U.K. with, with you know, England and Wales, and then a republic like France. Well, we run a bit like a republic. We have the brain that's in the capital that does all the stuff. Octopi, octopuses, they have their little brains and they do their things. They, those legs are kind of wandering off on their own, doing their own stuff. Um, and, uh, and then kind of reporting back home. So that's one thing that's pretty interesting about them. Other thing is their incredible uh, visual camouflage and displays. And, and the, there's meant to be some sort of communication. We don't know exactly how they're communicating. It's not all just for mating or whatever, but they, they have these incredible displays visually. And um, 
it sort of felt that they wear their hearts on their sleeves, that whatever mood they're in, you can see by their um, body expressions. Um, and it's just a thing of beauty to see the octopus uh, swimming along in its environment, blending in with its environment. Um, and as you may have noticed on the Blue Planet series, an octopus cooperatively fishing for prey with another fish. So they actually cooperate with whole other species. Uh, we thought we had the uh, exclusive on that, you know, like using a dog to help you hunt or something, but octopus do it too. Okay, that's um, really fascinating. Um, do you have any um, funny or interesting stories from your time fishing or um, studying the oceans that you'd like to share? Well, I really have to tell you a little bit about the Commonwealth Blue Charter because I've been in this business or whatever, this field for over 25 years, 30 years. For most of my life, it's been trying to convince politicians to do the right thing with the ocean. It's been an uphill battle, I'll be honest. It hasn't always been easy. But in 2018, uh, when we had been working to produce this thing called the Commonwealth Blue Charter, which was an agreement by the Commonwealth countries to work together to jointly tackle the ocean issues, to admit that no country could do this alone, that we could only do it collectively. And the Commonwealth accounts for over one third of um, waters under national jurisdiction, 35%. So it's a significant thing to get the Commonwealth to cooperate. Well, I have to tell you that in my whole career of begging and pleading and cajoling and convincing governments, none of that was necessary in April 2018 here in London. They were already stepping up to commit to do things before we had even got it adopted. There was... Um, there was an incredible, it was like the door was open. There wasn't even pushing a door. The door was open. We had ministers, we had um, senior officials all saying, yes, we have to do something about the ocean. Let's do this. Let's get it happening. You know, you might argue in my career was the most important moment of my career. It was also the easiest. It was just incredible to see the amount of engagement and um, buy-in that we have across the Commonwealth to do something about the ocean. So I just wanted to share that because it's a good news story. It's not all bad news. We have the political will that maybe you always hear, oh, there isn't enough political will, there isn't enough of this. We have the political will. I, I assure you, we have the political will. We may not have the resources. We may not always have the expertise. It's still very difficult to get things done. I'm not pretending it's easy, but we have the political will. Now we just have to get going and do it. Why do you think it was that there was so much enthusiasm in 2018 for this work? Well, here in the UK, Blue Planet had a huge effect, the Blue Planet effect. But I want to point out that there's 54, or at that time there were 53, countries in the Commonwealth, and they didn't all watch Blue Planet. They didn't all watch David Attenborough, great as he is. They had their own stories to tell. They had their, sometimes their own environmental heroes, but honestly, um, two-thirds of the world's small island developing states, the tiny st island states, are in the Commonwealth. And when you live on a little island surrounded by miles and miles and miles of ocean, it's not something you have to watch on television. You know, it's there. You live it every day. They knew. They knew for sure what was going on. And they had come to London to do something about it. Jeff, it's been really amazing having you on the show today and hearing about all your experience um, working with the oceans. Just before you go, are there any tips you have for people listening at home about what they can do to support this work and help government to find the solutions that we need to protect the oceans? Well, it's an expression that you only protect the things you love. I think that's true. So first thing I encourage you to do is love the ocean. 
get out in it, swim, scuba dive, you know, windsurf, whatever it is that you like to do, get out there, use that space. Of course, respectfully, naturally. You're not going to leave your litter on the beach, are you? You know, seriously, people, don't leave your litter on the beach. That's stupid. Uh, so love the ocean, but treat it with respect. And once you've learned to love the ocean and be with it and understand that it is so important to our planet and to us and is from whence we came, then those things that we started this interview with, tell your MPs. Tell your MPs where you'd like to have a protected area where you'd like to have real protections, not just where they say it's a protected area, but actually where the Russian trawlers are not allowed to scoop up all of our fish. Let's have some real protected areas and let's really just start doing what we should have been doing decades ago. Right, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Jeff, for being on the show today and um, to keep in touch and, and let us know how the work's going. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Top tip. So along with following Jeff's tips of going out and spending time in the ocean, swimming, diving and just sitting on the beach as long as you clean up your litter, uh, there's also a number of other things you can do to learn more about the oceans and get involved in helping ocean governance. So number one is you could join Surfers Against Sewage, www.sas.org.uk. They organise beach cleans and campaign for government to take action against climate change. So if you are interested in writing to your MP, they have some resources on their website that can tell you more about that. And they also organise beach cleans and do other activities that you can get involved with. Number two is uh, going to the Greenpeace website. Greenpeace are campaigning globally for at least a third of the world's oceans to be declared ocean sanctuaries, free from almost all human activities. So if that's something that you think is a good campaign that you'd like to get involved in, do have a look at the Greenpeace websites. Greenpeace have different websites for different countries all over the world and also different activities going on in different areas. So do have a look. They've got lots of different ocean projects and campaigns that they're doing that you could get involved in. So do have a look when you have time. Number three, you could write to your local politician, as we discussed on the show. Uh, in England, that would be your MP, Member of Parliament. But obviously, anywhere in the world, you should have a representative who you can contact either by email or phone or go into their office and talking to them about these issues and asking what they can do in your area or your country to raise the profile of oceans with central government and make sure that the laws that are in place are being respected and followed and that exploitation isn't happening in the oceans and maybe think about what other um, measures could be put in place. As Jeff was saying, he really supports fishing. So it's not that we want to stop all activities in the oceans necessarily. It's more that we want to live in harmony with the oceans in a healthy way and only take what we need um, and respect the wildlife that lives in the oceans. In the UK, we currently have a new environmental bill going through Parliament. So you could write to your MP to make sure that they support the bill and ensure rigorous measures are put in place through the bill to support habitats and wildlife. Um, if you don't live in the UK, then do have a look at what's happening in your area and what new laws or legislations might be being put in place to help the oceans. Uh, number four is plasticoceans.org. This is a great website with loads of resources um, for different places in the world about how to stop the amount of plastic that's building up in the oceans which is also a big issue at the moment and lastly number five you could start your own campaign or project so if none of the organizations that I've mentioned have something going on in your area you could think about starting your own project to bring your community together if you live near the beach great you could do a beach clean 
But if not, you could think about maybe a river or canal uh, or lake near you that you could go to um, and start learning about the natural environment around you. Spending time in nature with friends and family is a great way to connect with the living world and start thinking about what you can do to help nature thrive. So that's the end of the show today. I'd like to say a big thank you to Jeff for being on the show. It was really fascinating hearing from him. And also a big thank you to Molly Radio, who are one this week um, or this month, whenever you're listening to the podcast. Uh, They've done really amazing work keeping all the podcasts going through the lockdown, um, putting out new content every week, um, working with contributors and tutors to keep everything going so a uh, big thank you to them and a big happy birthday and do have a look at the website because uh, there's a video uh, about all the work they do and um, there was more information as well about how you can get involved take courses um, and learn more about radio production do follow us on twitter at molly radio and uh, get in touch if you want to find out more about uh, conservation or the environment or any of the courses or projects that are taking place at molly radio Thank you.